was Martin Luther King Day, and it was 2015. And there was a young man named John Smith, of whom a movie will come out about here in the next six weeks. And he was 14 years old, and he and a couple of his friends had gone out to Lake St. Louis, and they were playing around uh, on the ice that had frozen over the lake. When all of a sudden the ice began to crack, and John fell through the ice. His friends managed to make it back to shore, but John never came up. They called uh, the first responders to come in. They came in, and after 15 minutes of John being underneath the water, they finally found his body, and they pulled him out of the lake. He had no pulse, no heartbeat, and he was not breathing. It had been well over 15 minutes at this point. They put him into the ambulance that drove him to the local hospital. And for 45 minutes, they worked on him. Now it's been over an hour. His mother got there, Joyce Smith. She came in and they warned her of what was probably had happened. And as she came in, she prayed for her son. And as she prayed within seconds, a heartbeat came back. The doctors told her, look, Even if he survives through the night, which he probably won't, we doubt that he will live or be, have any type of brain activity. He will pretty much be a vegetable if if he were to survive. And so she prayed and she said, you know what? That's your opinion. I am praying that God restores him. And I don't want you to speak a word of that negative in the negative anywhere around him. And I just want you to do your best, and we're going to trust God with the rest. Which, by the way, that's Oswald Chambers' definition of faith. Do everything you can and trust what you cannot do to God. And so that's what they did. And after two days, he was able to communicate with those around him. After seven days, they took him off a ventilator, and he began to breathe on his own. Sixteen days later, he walked out of that hospital with a basketball in hand, which was one of his favorite sports, and he has showed no side effects since that day. It's a miracle. Do miracles still happen? Absolutely, they still happen. They still occur. And as we look this, in this series, we're going to be looking at the miracles of Christ. And I want to define for you what a miracle is. First, I want to give you an encyclopedia version, and then I want to give you a theological ver- understanding. First, what are miracles? And this is the encyclopedia difference, definition. An event in which the forces of nature, including the natural powers of man, cannot, cannot of themselves produce and which must therefore be referred to to a supernatural agency, okay? Now, uh, Wayne Grudeman, uh, who's a great theologian, he defines miracles in this manner from a biblical perspective. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. He justifies this definition by awe or amazement in such a way that God bears witness to himself. Miracles. Now, um, there are several types of miracles. There are at least three basic types of miracles that we see in Scripture. Uh, the first type of miracle is the miracle uh, in regards to nature. 
We see Jesus doing this when he calms a storm, when he walks on water. So some of the miracles are the type of nature. Number two, uh, another type is supply. When Jesus supplies when there's nothing or not enough there, whether it be uh, that he supplied the fish and the loaves for the 5,000, or as we will look at today, he provides wine, he makes and supplies wine when there is none. Uh, those are miracles of supply. But the other miracles that we usually typically think of of healing, and of course there's spiritual healing uh, when someone has an a evil spirit or a demon removed from them as well as they are made whole spiritually. But then there's also, of course, the physical side uh, where he makes the lame to walk, the blind to see, and the deaf to hear and speak. Uh, so those are the types of miracles. So why did Jesus perform miracles? Why do we see miracles occurring in Scripture? Well, let's first look at see what the Gospel of John chapter 20 tells us. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is what the Scripture tells us. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is John, uh, toward the end of the Gospel of John, uh, helping us understand why. He said, so that you may believe the Son of God and that by believing, by believing you may have life in his name. Now, we'll see there's four basic purposes for miracles. There's glorification, revelation, salvation, and restoration. Let's start with glorification, which is the primary purpose that we see miracles uh, perform. The Bible tells us in John eleven four, 4, and we'll see it in our passage today in John chapter 2. But when Jesus heard it said, the illness does not lead to death, it is for what? The glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Number two reason for miracles, revelations, revealing who Jesus is, revealing the, tr- the worth and the truth of God. Believe me, I am the Father and the Father is in me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the count of the works slash miracles themselves. Salvation. Number three, the Bible tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them right to become the children of God, and then restoration. This is what we see the most of. This is how Jesus primarily, they're basically miracles that restore individuals to what they should be, to what they were created to be. And the Bible says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Miracles of restoration. And it reminds us of the big gospel story that in the beginning, God created everything, all of mankind, all of life, all of the earth. And it was good. But then through sin, through man's fall, we call it, sin entered into the equation and contaminated every area of our lives. But God in his infinite mercy sent Jesus to live the life that you and I should have lived and die the death that we should have died, that we might experience redemption through his blood and sacrifice. So that one day we will ultimately be restored to the kingdom, and in the manner in which we so desire and in which God intended for you to be perfect and whole 
one day in the kingdom. So that's the story of the gospel. And we see that the purposes of miracles are just that, pointing us toward what we are to be and who Christ is. Now, with that understanding, let's start in our text in John chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. <coughs> and by the way, uh, miracles, just in case you're wondering, you wonder, why, you know, how do we really know those are true? How do we even believe these miracles of Jesus? Um, it's virtually almost every uh, accredited scholar, and I say that in that manner, accredited and respected scholar of history from the first and second century, uh, says Jesus, Jesus lived and that he performed wondrous works slash miracles. So that's pretty much a historical fact. Yeah, you'll have some yahoo who writes a book that says Jesus never existed. But Bart Ehrmans, who's probably the most famous atheist in the United States, the one that has written the most books, uh, the one who's sought to deconstruct Christianity, said, now, that Jesus existed, that's an undeniable fact. And Bart Ehrmans will also say, and that he, uh, that he did miracles, that's all also a fact. Um, but then he says, why and what do those mean? By the way, if you go back to the first century, Josephus said Jesus, who was a, uh, who was a Jew, who was not Christian in any way and was reporting and historically recording for the, for the Roman government, said that Jesus lived and that he did miraculous acts. Uh, Tacitus, the Roman uh, writer, said Jesus lived and that he did miraculous acts. And even Celsus, who was the first polemic, in other words, he was against Christianity. He, he sought to de- deconstruct and uh, basically to destroy it. Even, even Celsus, the, the Roman philosopher, said Jesus lived and did these amazing acts. That is really without question. So we have more evidence of his miracles than we do anything else. With that said, let's start with John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And you'll notice the scripture says, on the third day there was a wedding. Now that's significant right there, because what does he mean on the third day? What does the third day mean? Now one of the things it, it we can say as we uh, look, as we see the foreshadowing, is uh, it foreshadows what will happen. Jesus, what happens? He dies, and on the third day, he rises, okay? And so that's a foreshadowing of that. But not only that, the third day, what is he literally talking about in this instance? Well, if you went back to John chapter 1 and read verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he makes this proclamation. He says, John says, "'Behold the Lamb of God.'" who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. That was the day one. Now it's three days from that, proclama- that proclamation, that announcement by John. Now it's the third day after that, and it's the third day there's a wedding. Now, again, realizing that this story is a picture or what we call a foreshadowing of what's to come, it also is very meaningful if you're a Jew. And we'll talk about the background in just a moment. The Bible consistently talks about that uh, the bride of Christ, which is the church, the groom is coming for the bride of Christ. And we see that analogy used. We also see the analogy that the new kingdom uh, will be one, that of heaven, will be that of a great feast. So there's, it's a wedding. That, that metaphor is used about that time that one day we will come together with Christ. We will be 
fully restored and we will be fully renewed and at the great feast. So as, as a Jew, as I'm reading this, this is rich with meaning. The third day after the announcement of Christ, there's a wedding because we would say, you know what? If I were Jesus and I was going to do my first miracle, which is your calling card, just kind of put you on the map, would you change water into wine? There's a couple of you that might. But most people would say, no, I, you know, I would do something big that everybody knew for sure that knew was a fact. But let's see why Jesus might have chosen this to be his first miracle. On the third day was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the, to the wedding with his disciples. Now, in that day and age, uh, weddings were far different. It was like your one big day, and it wasn't just a big day. It, sometimes, if you were wealthy, it was a week, and even if you didn't have much, it was at least two or three days, and you would save up a lot just for the wedding party, just for the food, and particularly for the wine. And so this is someone that Mary knows well, maybe even a relative, we don't know. We have good reason to believe that Joseph has probably died by this point. But Mary uh, lets Jesus know, they probably didn't do RSVPs, this was a whole village. The village would come out for the wedding and you would supply the food and drink for those three days. So Jesus was invited along with his disciples and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's good. I didn't, I didn't plan on providing booze for all these people, you know, and that's, uh, that's not the purpose that we're here. But in that day, it was a major faux pas. In other words, one of the things that you were supposed to provide for your guests was wine, and it would have been an embarrassment to the family. So she's concerned. She's close enough to them that she comes and she tells Jesus, look, there's no wine. This is not good. Jesus, what do you think? What, what can you do? And then Jesus gives a peculiar response. Jesus said to her, woman. Most of you are thinking, ah, especially if you're one. I do not like the way he's addressing his mother. And if you're a mother, you really don't like the way he's addressing his mother. You know why? Because that's in our vernacular. You got to realize that Jesus is, first of all, he's probably communicating in Aramaic. And this word woman is really a term of respect. It would be like, ma'am. You know, my mom taught me when I was a kid growing up, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, thank you, ma'am. It was a term, term of respect. So it's a respectful term. It's not a derogatory way to say it. It's not a frustration. One of the reasons I really believe this is true, if you think of the context, you really, Jesus only talks, his, he only calls his mother one more time. You know when it is? When he's on the cross. And when he's dying on the cross, in his last few words, what does he say? Woman? He calls her this again. You really think he was being rude on the cross right before he died? Woman! No. You've got to understand the context. Madam, ma'am, behold your son. And so we continue. What does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. What does this have to do with me? Why are you telling me this? Now, the traditional understanding of this passage would be this. Jesus is going, what does this have to do with me? This is not my business. This is not my, this is not my time. What are you doing? I, why, why, why do I care? That's traditionally how we interpret it. To you, to me, is what the Greek liter literally says. But I, I, again, I don't think this is right. I'm going to give you my interpretation. I want to remind you of something. 20% of my theology is wrong. Um, I don't know what 20% it is or I would correct it. 
So I am not saying this is an inerrant, uh, inerrant interpretation. And by the way, you can go down the road and that guy's got 20%, maybe 30, who knows. Uh, so we all misinterpret things, okay? We all misunderstand things. Why? Because we're fallible. Infallible scripture, fallible preacher, all right? And fallible congregants too, by the way. All right, so we're all in this together. But with that understanding, um, what I believe Jesus is communicating, and some scholars would say this, he's allowing his mother to be a part of this process. Woman, do you understand what that means for you and for me? Do you understand what this means for me? We know that hour is his death. That's how it's usually referred to in Scripture, the hour of his death. But you know, once we go down this road, once I begin, are you ready? And Jesus knows he's ready. Jesus knows this is going to be the time. But I think this is for the sake of his mother. Madam, do you know what this means for you and for me? Our relationship will never be the same. You will not see me at home. I will not be here to take care of you. He's the oldest son. His, his father, Joseph, has probably died, Mary's husband. And I think she knows this because she heard the proclamation that this was the son of God, that he was born of a virgin. She knows. And she's saying, are you ready? You know what this means? And what does she say? Do whatever he tells you. You want the practical application for your life today? And the sermon, here it is. That's, that's it right there. Ask whatever you will and then yield to whatever he says. Ask, yield. Should I pray? Should I ask God for the little things? Should I ask God to direct me in, the, in, in when I buy a house or an education or in how I handle my children or my relationships? Yes, always ask. God loves for his children to ask. Just like when our children are, are small and younger, we want them to ask, but that doesn't mean we always give them what they want. But for them to never ask means that we have no relationship. Asking is a sign of connectedness, that you see the value of that person, that you understand that they are in control and have authority. You understand that they have power. You understand that they have care for you, and so you ask. So it's always okay to ask, but then we are to yield to, uh, so to speak, uh, accept what God says. Ask and yield. Back to our scripture here, we see that he says, now there were six stone jars. His mother says, do whatever he asks. By the way, just so you know this, another reason I think, the reason I interpret the scripture there, because if not, he's just said, well, what, is that? what does this have to do with me? And this isn't my hour yet. Then what does he do then? And she says, do whatever he says. All right, mom, well, whatever, I'm guilted, I'm manipulated. The Son of God has been manipulated into creating wine. Is that what happens? I don't think that's what's happening at all. We don't see a spirit of manipulation. I don't think Jesus gets manipulated into anything, by the way. So that's another reason I think that. So with that understanding, she says, do whatever he says. I'm ready, whatever he says. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. All right, so these are for ritual purification. Uh, we, we like to think, well, before you eat, the Jews would wash. They'd ceremonially wash uh, before they would go into worship or any kind of ceremony. And this being a wedding ceremony, they would wash and make themselves ready. 
And of course, before they were feasting, uh, they would wash. Now, this was thought to be a ritual. And it's really interesting in Leviticus, actually, uh, God ordained this for the nation of Israel when nobody knew anything about hygiene. But yet God had them washing before they would eat. They didn't know anything about germs. Uh, They didn't know anything about hygiene. And this was meant to be a sign, a picture uh, that they were different. And little did they know, it was also good for their health. (laughs) They weren't spreading diseases. They were unique people. So uh, just a little freebie. Um, But as we continue, that's that's what they'd do. They'd wash their hands. They'd wash their feet. And they'd use the water. And that was the old covenant. The old covenant, that was what they were to do. But now we're going to see that he's entering in a new covenant, and he uses the old covenant to fulfill it. He fills it with what? With wine. So he tells them, look, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So he's had them fill. Uh, they probably all washed. There's been a lot of people. There's probably hardly any water in it. Now they filled all those containers, somewhere around 150 gallons. They filled it to the brim with water. And he said, now take some out and go take it to the master of the feast. There's that term feast again. So now let's stop right here for just a moment. Now, if I'm a Jew and I know my scriptures, I might be thinking about a certain passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. Let's look at that for just a moment before we finish this story. And I, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, is talking about the messianic reign, the, the messianic reign, the Messiah's reign. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, what? A feast. There's that metaphor of what the new kingdom will be like, what it will be. And he said, it's like a feast. Of rich food and a feast of what? Well-aged wine. Of which, of of rich food of marrow and of aged wine, well-refined. Of high-quality, good wine. That's the picture of the messianic kingdom to come. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He's talking about all nations. Not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles, he will swallow up, what? Death forever, and the Lord will wipe away any tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, and for the Lord has spoken. Okay, with verse 6 particularly in mind, realizing that he's bringing a fresh, high-quality wine, that's what the kingdom will be like at the feast. We go back to our passage right here in John. And the Bible says, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. So the only two groups that know are the servants. What does God say? The word of God says, the least shall be first and the first shall be last. We see right here that the servants know and the disciples know. No one else really knows what's going on. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. We all try to live our best life first. And there's the picture from the eschatology, I'm trying to say eschatology, from the end days of how much better our life is going to be, how much better heaven's going to be. Everyone who serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You've kept the best 
for now. You've kept the best for last. This is the first of his signs. And again, if I'm a Jew, I'm seeing this. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm checking him out. The servants, they're hearing this. They're seeing this. They have an awareness of Scripture. In the new kingdom, it will be like a feast when the Messiah comes and reigns over the earth. And there will be plenty of wine, wine for everyone. And here he is at at a wedding. And there's the picture of how Christ will come and receive his bride, the church. And then there will be a feast. There will be a time of all that you could ever want or desire in your spirit as God created you. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and did what? Remember we talked about glorification, the purpose for the miracle, and manifested his glory. Purpose of the miracle here. It's giving revelation, it's giving glorification, and ultimately salvation, and then restoration. And then we see this last little phrase, and his disciples believed in him. That's interesting. Why would it say that? You know why? Three days ago, Jesus said, come follow me. And they're probably hoping, thinking, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that at least points us toward the Messiah? Could this be? They don't know for sure. But then Jesus performs this miracle. And as good Jewish young men who had studied the scriptures in the Old Testament, they see this picture that only the Messiah, a picture of what the Messiah would bring and what it would look like. And the Bible says the disciples then believed. This is when they know. That's why it's Jesus' first miracle. What about you today? What do you No, have you come to that place where you recognize that God is the God of the universe and that he's made himself noble and and in relationship for us through Jesus Christ? The old wine is a picture of the old wineskins as the old covenant. And many people try to still live in that old covenant. I'm just going to be a good person. I'll go to church and I'll be nice and I hope I get in. And I'll try, to do, I'll try to do the Ten Commandments. I'll try to do the things that Bible says. But the new wine, the new system, the new grace is this. Christ died for you. His blood covers you. You don't earn it or deserve it, but by grace you're saved through faith. And you have become the new wine through the blood of Christ. The new covenant. In just a moment, we'll receive communion and we'll see that the cup of the new covenant, the New Testament covenant of Christ that enables you and I to have the blood of Christ applied to us and we have a new beginning, a new life and it's symbolized by the wine of his blood, the wine of his spirit. What about you? What are you asking for today and what are you yielding today I want to finish and read this prayer and I pray that you make it your prayer maybe some of you are here today and you are asking for a miracle you are asking for God to reveal himself to you you are asking for God's strength and here's a blessing here's a prayer I ask for strength that I might achieve 
I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I needed. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you today asking, asking you to heal our bodies, to heal our land, to heal our spirits. We ask that the new wine of your blood would cover us as we confess you as Savior and as a new beginning starts in our lives as we experience the wine of Christ. Lord, we want to taste and see that you are good, but not to just be simply satisfied with tasting, but you desire for us to feast upon your spirit in the fullness and in, Lord, the wholeness of who you are. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you today, I pray that you would draw them. And God, I thank you for believers that you would instill within our hearts that there is new wine. Even in the crushing and in the pressing, you are making new wine out of our lives, new beginnings, fresh starts. You redeem all things for your glory, and we say thank you. As we prepare to receive the table, Lord, we confess our sins, and we give testimony that you are our Savior. Examine our hearts. Try us and see if there's any sin that we should confess. And Lord, convict us that we might become the glory for you. In your name I pray, amen.